It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't sister. know we were going to go there on this. <laughs> people that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I want to do something a little bit different for this episode of First Contact. About two and a half weeks ago, I interviewed Ev Williams, who founded Twitter and Medium and Blogger. And I had asked him, you know, about the coronavirus and his thoughts on it. And two and a half weeks ago, I would say here in the United States, everything looked very, very, very different. And so this episode, as we release it, I wanted to talk to him again and ask his thoughts on it now because, you know, this is such an extraordinary moment. And I would say that a lot of us are grappling with what does this virus mean for us? What does it mean for our families and our parents and our loved ones? And a lot of us are beginning to self-isolate, to go home and spend a lot of our lives digitally. And I think there's extraordinary power uh, and what's about to happen in our relationship with technology and this fear during this moment. And so I wanted to chat a little bit with Ev about that in light of everything that's happened. Uh, and to give you a little bit of a sense of where I'm at, out of precaution, I am uh, self-isolating and understanding the power of digital and digital connection and really trying to grapple with what it's going to mean to be human in this era where there's so much fear and we are relying on our digital connections. So bear with me for the sound. How we're going to do this is I decided to go back and interview him, but it's a phone call and I had to take it from home. So bear with us for the sound and we're going to play that interview. And then once we play that, it's only 15 minutes. We're going to get to the main interview where you can hear about the future of media. And the thinking behind this is this is a future facing conversation and what's occurred in just the last week here in the United States is, I think, game-changing for the future and what it means for all of us. So take a listen, and we will have the other part of the interview right after this phone call. 
All right. Okay. Here we go. All right. All right. As I'm sitting here, self-isolated, uh, in my in my New York apartment, um, you know, everything feels really different now. And I'd asked you at the time, two and a half weeks ago, like, how worried about coronavirus are you? You said something like 10% worried. And uh, by the way, I was kind of with you because I don't think any of us thought what was going to happen was going to happen. Yeah. So I wanted to give you before, like we play the episode for folks and all that kind of stuff, uh, because so much has happened in the two and a half weeks that we sat across from each other. And by the way, we would not be sitting across from each other now. Um, we're right. remote given the state of things. Like how, how are you feeling about it now? Uh, very different. And I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an understatement to say so much has happened in two and a half weeks because it feels like it's really two and a half days. Everything's changed. And I think everyone, especially if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, as I have, I think I've spent more time on Twitter in the last week than in the last few months. And that's just, it's pretty terrifying. It's, it's easy to get completely swept up in the stories and the the rhetoric and you know, there's a lot of noise, but I think there's a lot of really valid concerning information coming out. Yeah. How do you think, I was thinking about this because like I'm home and I think increasingly we're all going to be living these digital lives for the time being. Like, mm-hmm. I, by the way, it's so weird to be sitting here talking to someone who created like, you know, major companies that shaped the modern internet, right? And and I think we're in this weird mode where like we're gonna be really relying fully on living in a digital totally. state for a little bit. Like, I mean you created Twitter, you created blogger, you created medium, like how is our relationship with tech gonna change, do you think, in the in the coming weeks, maybe months? Um I don't know. I haven't had a chance to think about it too much, yeah. but I'm very, I think in some ways, grateful and appreciative of just the infrastructure we have now to deal with this. And it's fairly recent, and this isn't even the thing. Like, Twitter, I think, shines in moments like this, and that's great. But all the other infrastructure we have now, just the fact that many of us are, are anyway, have the broadband and the video conferencing that actually works and the things we need to do our jobs and stay informed are there. And so it's feasible. And actually for many companies, at least like mine, not that disruptive, all things considered. The most disruptive thing is, is probably for most people I know is the kids being out of school because it's, it's uh, that's the hardest thing about working at home. But I think that being fully immersed in the digital world and being further apart individually and even not having the opportunity to break from that, even if that's your day-to-day job, and then it's evening time and you don't have that opportunity to go out in the world and connect with friends face-to-face or go to restaurants or go to a show, I think that's going to be hard. Yeah, my whole career, I've, I've sat across from people like you and ask questions like, with tech, how do we maintain our humanity? Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe it's kind of personal to me right now because I'm sitting here self-isolating, like, and the only connection I have now is, like, it's so weird. I'm literally doing this interview with you 
where I'm taping a call. I'm, I mean, to give you a sense, I'm basically like trying to make sure the sound is okay under a sheet. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, like I, I literally did give everyone a very authentic sense of like what this is like. As you talk about like the fear is like we're going to live fully digitally to a degree. How do you think we can maintain our humanity during this time? Well, I think the, the counter is that the, the pandemic affects us all obviously affects some people worse than others and they're not all in exactly the same boat but it is it brings out humanity is what i'm trying to say in in a way where so i think it makes it much clearer as any real real crisis does or any threat that you know what is important and people usually come back to the same things about friends and family and and caring about your community and so it's a weird situation because you can see that you can see that online, even though people aren't necessarily doing that physically. At least what I see and what I think about is, is the caring and how do we, how do we help each other through this? So that part of our humanity, I think it will bring out. Yeah. This is where I like to get to say, so how are you going to do it? How are you going to make sure? <laughs> well, I'm, very I feel very fortunate that I'm with my family right now and with a couple of close friends and so so we're hanging out together so mm-hmm. I think there's for me just I had a delightful conversation with my mm-hmm. seven-year-old <laughs> and and we're in the same place so I'm, I'm yeah. glad I didn't have to talk to my seven-year-old through video conference but um He's in great spirits so far because he's, uh, you know, gets to skip school. And uh, we had this funny conversation. He actually asked me last night, if you had to die, not of old age, how would you die? Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty deep conversation with yeah. uh, with him. And so it doesn't get much more human yeah. than that. I know. Wait, so what was your answer? I Hopefully it wasn't coronavirus. <laughs> Please tell me it wasn't coronavirus, Ed. Uh, no, it was definitely not okay. getting sick. It was okay. definitely sickness Good. seems to be, and yeah. we went as as seven year old boys will do. We went down some pretty gruesome routes Good. there after that, which I'll spare listeners. <laughs> um, it feels like we're all beginning to live in this full on digital, almost like experiment, as we all start mm-hmm. isolating in fear of the virus. I sat down with you for over an hour, and we talked about the future of media and your thoughts. When we come out of this, do your thoughts change at all on the future of media, given what this almost like digital experiment we're beginning to live kind of looks like? Does this change how you feel about the future of media? Uh, I haven't really had time to think about that deeply yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would guess in the very long term, no. Yeah. But I think what's very clear is transition to medium the last few days is this crisis has sucked the air out of everything else. It, it has our full attention. And I mean, that's, that's having a dramatic effect on media right now. Um, and how long that lasts is impossible to predict. I think obviously things are going to get worse. It could be if we were to talk in two and a half more weeks, we would be in a completely different state um, and it's going to get gruesome. So certainly the shorter term impact on media is 
it's hard to talk about anything else. And then the longer term is if there's a likely recession and how does that affect consumer spending and therefore the ad business as well as subscription businesses. I expect all that to have pretty big ramifications over the short term, but that short term, I I would, you know, is, is months and years. Yeah. You know, I, I know that there could be a panic. People's lives could be at risk. Will this change the rules around social media and misinformation, or have you seen any changes even in the last week or so, or do you sense anything changing? Um, I don't know. I've been just in my own efforts to get information. Yeah. It's interesting because I've, I've I had curated my Twitter followings well enough that I felt like I was getting very high-quality information. But then again, maybe everyone feels like that. <laughs> yeah. I would dip into, I would see some retweets and some comments via my timeline on a whole different Twitter where there's some serious BS being bandied about. And and I was like, wow, people are still saying this, you know, it's like downplaying the whole thing or touting yeah. conspiracy theories. So that is definitely out there. And bad actors will take advantage of heightened stress and any opportunity to, to spread misinformation. And this is probably the biggest one of all time. Will that lead to anything? I don't know. It's a leadership moment for everyone, right? Like, I, sure. yeah. are you finding it's changing you as a leader? Or how do you want to lead during this time? The big thing for me focusing on the company is just trying to help people feel some sense of stability as we go through this. I mean, there are obviously going to be companies that are going to be hit hard, going to have to do layoffs, aren't going to be able to get their next round of funding. And I'm not really worried about any of that for us, but there's, it's going to increase, you, you know, you see headlines about that. And if you're in a startup, then you wonder, oh, is my company in trouble? Yeah. And so I'm trying to, to create some sense of stability and also just trying to rally people. And everyone wants to do positive things. And so what we see on Medium is like there's a lot of good information on Medium. So someone had the idea, hey, we, what if we made everything around coronavirus that we have control over? We put make sure it's outside the paywall. And yeah. so people don't feel like, you know, they're being charged for, for what can be important information. And yeah. so looking at those opportunities to actually be of service and not opportunistic, but actually like, oh, if there's roles we can play and we feel fortunate that we're I mean, this is why we exist, to help people get access to good information and good ideas, as well as express things and connect with other people. And so so we feel like we can be relevant and encouraging people to come up with those ideas, act on those ideas, change plans that maybe, you know, our longer term plans don't change. But I think that helps both, it essentially helps other people, but also help, helps the team, you know, really feel like not be totally overwhelmed and distracted by the bad news if you feel like you can help something. Right. Are you afraid? I'm I'm not afraid much for me and my family, but for the yeah, for the world, for sure. And for all that and there's definitely gonna be a lot of people really sick and everything I read and talk to doctors I know that we are the our healthcare systems are definitely not prepared. Um yeah, that's scary. All right. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. And stay healthy. 
Wash your hands. All right. Um, All right. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Lloyd. So that's it for that portion of the interview. Now, this is the portion of the interview we taped about two and a half weeks ago. What do you think communication looks like in 50 years? Oh, wow. 50 years. I tend to think that things get more extreme. I think a lot of the sci-fi visions of people being totally jacked into the matrix, whether it's VR or more likely AR, augmented reality, like the fact that we'll have heads-up displays and glasses that project information into our eyeballs, I think that will totally be true. And do you think with augmented layers, we're all just going to be in like a giant video game of sorts? Yeah, basically. I want to start by taking you back. It's the middle of winter in 2016. I'm meeting up with one of the founders of Twitter, Ev Williams. It's been six years since I last interviewed him. His chosen spot? A bookstore in downtown New York. Now, I remember thinking at the time, this guy founded three major tech companies. Blogger, Twitter, and now Medium, a publishing platform. And he wants to meet up somewhere surrounded by books? Books which have almost become like ancient artifacts because of the digital world that he helped create. But when you get to know Ev, you'll understand that words, thoughts, and the sharing of ideas are in his DNA. Knowing him a bit better now, I couldn't think of a better place for us to talk about the future of technology. I've interviewed Ev many times over the years, and of the Silicon Valley CEOs I've spoken to, he's one of the more curious founders I've met. Where other founders like to talk, you see him listening. He's quiet. And he sits back but knows how to read a room. And most importantly, he has a proven track record of creating communication tools that fundamentally change the way we speak to one another. So pay attention to what he says about the future of media. There's a lot to sift through. Will augmented images be projected into our eyeballs? Will Silicon Valley ever move beyond the attention economy? Will the future of media look like an all-encompassing video game? And why is it that someone who has experienced insurmountable success is still so afraid to fail? There's a lot to explore, and no one better than Ev Williams to help us make sense of it all. I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. Ev, you are the founder and CEO of Medium. Also, you were Twitter CEO for several years, and Twitter came out of Odeo, which was a podcasting platform, so you were way ahead of your time. And before that, you created Blogger, which pretty much revolutionized blogging online, wouldn't you say? As opposed to the blogging offline Fair. that we were all doing Moving in the early 90s. on. <laughs> well, this show is called First Contact, and I was super excited about this because I did some digging for our first contact. Do you remember our first contact? Was it a South by? Yeah. Yes. It was 10 years ago. And you were the CEO of Twitter mm. at the time. Mm. Okay. So I found a photo. There it is. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. Yep. I wish our listeners could see that. Um, but that was 10 years ago. And I. Why am I in the middle? Well, because I, I think I was interviewing you. It was March 23rd, 2010. And I was interviewing you. I was actually. Um, a production assistant at the time pretending to be a producer, um, but interviewing you. 
as the CEO of Twitter, so much has happened in 10 years, I would say. We talk a lot about kind of beginnings here. I want to go back to Nebraska, Mm. where you're from, and talk about how you got into all of this. So I watched a commencement speech that you did, and you were talking about this giant idea sharing machine that you're mm-hmm. into, this thing you've kind of always been obsessed with. And it's something about like opening up the second edition of Wired magazine and just like falling in love with this idea of connecting our brains. Right. What about it was so interesting to you? And don't give me this like, ah, oh, you know, like large answer, like because like, <laughs> I, you know, I just hate when founders do that, when they're like, oh, I just really wanted to connect the world. Like that seems so broad. Like you were this guy in Nebraska, like, and you opened up the second edition of Wired and you were just like, hooked in some capacity? What was it? So you don't want a large answer. Can I give a medium answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a joke. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think I was captivated by the notion of getting out of where I was because I was from this very small rural place and pre-internet growing up and I never traveled and I just was itching to see the world, but not in a traveling sense necessarily, but just to kind of break out of there. And so the idea of getting access to the world and ideas through this little box on our desks, as it was at the time, was super compelling. And it wasn't, I wouldn't claim it was altruistic of connecting the world. It was just the idea of being connected. And it was more from a uh, idea knowledge perspective than a social perspective. I wasn't necessarily looking to make friends, but uh, did you have friends growing up? I did mean, I? Yeah. I mean, was it? Were you kind of like a lonely kid, or was it? I, I mean, was it kind of a form of connection? I was, I was lonely, but I wasn't a loner. I was social. There just were very few people, and uh, so I think I was spending a ton of time alone. And by this time, I had gone off to college actually, and then I had quit. But I was looking, I was still having that feeling of there's more out there in the world. In fact, my cousin had a cousin from Kansas City, which was the big city, and he came and visited us on the farm one time, and he gave me this book, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Do you know that book? Mm-mm. It's like a children's book, a fable, and it's about the seagull who is different, and he wants to to break away from his flock and basically... And my cousin wrote a note in in the book saying something about regarding that, that he saw that in me and that I could, you know, get out of there or, uh, you know, it was okay. Hmm. And so I think it was that yearning to be in a different place than it was and more connected to the greater world that really compelled me. Hmm. I, um, I think for me, so growing up for me, like I was the only Jewish girl at a very Christian, conservative Southern school and had parents that were divorced. And I think for me, I because of that, for some reason, I always felt like a little bit of an outsider. And so I always liked outsider stories. And that's mm-hmm. why I went to go on to do what I did, I think, which is tell outsider stories, which you could argue you guys are now all insiders in some kind of way. You guys are all very powerful now. But um, I don't know who you guys is, but I tech, still feel like an o- outsider for sure. So I guess I, I, guess I, I ask you that. Um, to a degree, like when you say you're talking about this book, you're talking about this idea of like doing something big or being different. Where do you think specifically that came from? 
I don't know whether it was was something I was born with or just, I mean, there's all kinds of narratives that I could imagine mm-hmm. in wanting to to do something important growing up in a place where I didn't feel important. But as I got into it, it was it was compelling in its own right. Just technology in in the internet specifically in the early 90s, I guess, mid 90s, and then started Blogger in 99 was was just so interesting because of you could sense the potential and not that I or anyone saw the future in detail, but you there was the the talk about it at the time about connecting the world and sharing ideas and information at our fingertips and all the media ever produced being, you know, accessible and all that is true now and we take it for granted. And that was such a like it's a transformative thing. And the way I look at it now is is that there's so much that we take for granted that has emerged over the last twenty years and all kinds of it is is broken and is it good or bad and and there's there's problems that come with it. And I think it's all still very interesting because in 20 years, we've completely changed how humans get their information and how they communicate with each other. And of course, it's broken. And of course, we still have to work on and make it better. And so while a lot of the novelty has gone away and a lot of the, the painful reality is, is, is come up, there's still all these exciting and really cool things that we don't even think about now that I think are still pretty cool. But back then, it was oh my gosh, could this really actually be true? I read that you kind of went west and because you were looking at Silicon Valley, which you thought was just like geniuses, just like Baywatch and like something else. But like, <laughs> I know that's going to come back to haunt you now that I've said it. It was like Baywatch, geniuses and something else was like Silicon Valley. Probably. How, did, how yeah. did you feel when you first got there? Yeah, that was my, so when you're not from California, when you're from the Midwest and you only know California from TV and movies, it kind of all blurs together. So uh-huh. you assume that surfing and the beach have something to do mm-hmm. with, with computers and, and everything else. But um, yeah, Northern California, I I traveled to California for the first time when I was 24, 25. And I saw the ocean for the first time when I was 20. So that was on the other coast. I went to Florida. But so everything was new and I was nervous, but I did feel in California, uh, instantly I noticed two things. One is there were no bugs like <laughs> in the air. It was during the summer and it felt like a movie set. Hmm. What did I know of movie sets? But it, because I was in California, that's what came to mind. Because in the Midwest, in the summer, there's bugs. And it felt very strange and, and not real but also felt very comfortable in that because everyone there, it seemed like, was from somewhere else. And so that feeling of being an outsider was was lessened because mm. it was a community of outsiders. Those are the two things I remember when mm. I first got there. And so we fast forward all these all these years later, we talk about like, you know, 20 years later, and this whole idea of this idea sharing machine that you had in mind, um, you connected the world in all these different ways with Twitter, Medium, Blogger. I know everyone asks you now, like, how do you feel? How do you feel about what's happened with Twitter? How do you feel? All this stuff. And I remember the headlines, like, now Ev Williams is going to fix the internet and all this stuff. Like, But, like, behind the scenes, 
And like when you're sitting at the dinner table and when like you're with your wife and kids and like you think like, whoa, you really did create this incredible ecosystem for us to all, you know, share information. How do you feel about it? Well, the first thing, even hearing that, I feel uncomfortable like saying that I did these things. I was part of something. And I think the main thing that I feel is incredibly grateful to be a part of um, both Twitter and the greater the, the internet as it's um, grown and emerged over the last couple decades and to be just at at the forefront of that and and helping that along was just an incredible experience that yeah I feel lucky to have been a part of is the main thing and I don't spend a lot of time lamenting choices we made or or regret I'm very focused on what's new and interesting and and what can we do next now, over the last six months, I've been living in New York after spending 22 years in San Francisco and, and Silicon Valley. So mostly I just feel like there's new, interesting stuff to explore. And I'm, I don't feel like because I was a part of something, um, I, I get questioned like, do I regret things or would I've changed things? And all that gets very complicated and nuanced. Um, and I don't. Um, I don't know how to answer those questions. You said something about make sure technology makes things easier, but do you worry that things got a little bit too easy? Yeah, yeah. I think so that something I realized a few years ago, and Tim Wu has, has written some great stuff on this, but I realized at one point that the way to make something successful in technology, and probably most businesses, but at least technology-enabled businesses, was simply to make something easier. Something that a human wanted, you make it easier. And that could be connection, it could mean romance, it could mean status, it could mean goods delivered, it could mean the answer to you know, information. And you you go through the list of major things people want, entertainment, and you look at the major tech companies and what they've mostly done is that this thing that people have always wanted, we made substantially easier. And you look at how the big tech companies have what they've gotten really, really good at and take Amazon and it's one click and literally patenting the idea of buying something with one click. That was a major value creator. And then the free shipping and Prime so you didn't have to think about it and always having the lowest price and having the best selection. And and Google, how they've been obsessed with speed and low friction. And company after company has has basically used technology to reduce friction and make things easier. So in many ways, that's great. And then obviously, humans are humans, and they, they want things that aren't always good for it. And I think society as a whole has kind of gone through this sugar binge. And now we're, we're reeling in that and saying, oh, well, like we shouldn't have allowed all that technology, or we shouldn't have partaken that much. But I think we're figuring out how to deal with that. How are we going to deal with the fact that there is all this stuff that's immediately available, and, and it's exploiting many base instincts in the same way that junk food exploits base instincts and saying, how do we deal with that? How do our kids deal with that? How does society deal with that? And how are people manipulating that, manipulating us in ways we don't even know? We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, Ev talks about clickbait, the worst offenders, and why medium is different. Also, if you like what you're hearing, make sure you hit subscribe to First Contact in your podcast app so you don't miss another episode. 
I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I, I read from a blog post you posted, it was like 2015, you said, you, I was never a fan of RSS readers. Sometimes they made things easier to read, but I didn't like how they took content out of context, especially from sites where I like the design. But then you kind of went on to create Twitter, which like it seems like it's like <laughs> everything is just like can be taken out of context to a degree, right? I mean, maybe yeah. that's a that, that yeah. doesn't make complete sense. Or it creates a new context. Yeah, but it certainly seems like this moment has kind of lost a little bit of context or, or something. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think is the solution to to some of to some of our internet's latest issues? 
I think context has a tremendous amount to do with how people interpret information as well as what they share. And I think what we're focused on Medium on doing is enabling thoughtful and meaningful content to find its right audience and, and find a receptive audience. And what we're fighting against is the fact that there is the, the way that, that the content distribution systems of the internet have evolved over the some time is for optimization of attention. On the internet, it's like the goal is to distract you. And the reward is if you actually capture enough attention cheaply enough and get distract enough people, then you make money. And that's what we rely on for our information. And so I think it's 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 systemic. It's not a matter of, well, we need better publishers or we need better better systems to control the bad stuff or we need to kill misinformation. It's much more fundamental, I think, in how are there systems that allow people, whether journalists, writers, um, uh, experts, people who are sharing information and knowledge, is the incentive structure rewarding the right thing? I think in, for the most part, it's not today. And so, I mean, I remember maybe it was three years ago. I mean, you've been taught, you were kind of talking about this before people were talking about this. I give this to you. I've been kind of obsessed with on this for a while. You've been obsessed <laughs> with this. I mean, it's like okay to talk about this now, but when you started talking about this, it kind of wasn't okay to talk about as a Silicon Valley leader. Like, I will give you that. Like, you had stepped away from Twitter, but you were on the board at the yeah. time. I don't think people fully understand this. Like, the first time you said this, like, it was kind of controversial, right? Like now everyone is like, oh, the attention economy mm. and like, and you know, our attention is not being, and now this is like a whole buzzword in Silicon Valley. But like when you came out and you were like, our attention is under attack, like I can imagine, first of all, that got awkward in the boardroom at Twitter because isn't that their business model? Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct. Twitter does make its money from advertising. So was that awkward? Um, y- Yes and no, but I mean, maybe- it gets complicated because then I um, not I'm not on the board of Twitter anymore, but I do make a distinction between types of advertising and the advertising and distribution systems such as Twitter and and Google and content advertising. But it gets a little little complicated, and so advertising is just gen- like the worst offender. Oh gosh. Um, there's no actual, I, it'd be too hard to name the worst offender. I mean, we've all been across the web and seen these right. just terrible sites that are overloaded with ads and, and the clickbait. And there, there's, we can all recognize the worst offenders when we see them. But I think about what what's complicated about talking about this and in the Twitter case, I don't think that's at all the worst offender, nor is Google. There, there's a defensible argument that that's the best way to, to fund a, an information distribution system because the content itself doesn't get promoted based on its advertising, which is different than other systems where, where the content has the advertising embedded in it. There's a time when television was seen to be trash and movies were the, you know, the only high form of video entertainment. And now that's no longer true. What changed to make that no longer true was the best television stopped being funded by advertising. And then consumers got a much better value proposition, a much better product via streaming and first of all, HBO and other premium channels. And now that's the norm. Music went through the same thing. There's a time when music was, the whole music industry was gonna be out of business because of Napster. And then obviously for decades, there's commercial radio 
And now it's healthier than it's ever been. And the consumer value proposition is amazing. For 10 bucks a month, you can get access to everything you've ever wanted in these great playlists and discovery. So I think there is reason to be optimistic that if you change the system and what's rewarded, we can get to a much better solution. So take me to to the reason behind building Medium and, and what you found, because this is um, this is a reaction to a lot of the stuff we just spoke about. Totally. So we, I started Medium eight years ago, so 2012, which was before, certainly before a lot of people were talking about advertising and before fake news. I mean, fake news at the time was, was the onion in The Daily Show. It was delightful. Um, right. So I saw what happened with social media, which... I thought added this whole interesting layer in real-time information exchange, speaking of Twitter specifically, and there was nothing like that on the more on the bigger side, so to speak. So Twitter, people would exchange links and then you'd click off to a website and you'd read an article and often it wasn't yet optimized for mobile and it had all these ads in there and it was kind of and if you were publishing a website, then you go to Twitter or search or email, try to get someone to come there. And if they came, they weren't, they probably weren't logged in. So if you wanted to comment or something, just the systems didn't feel modern and they didn't feel evolved. And they also didn't seem like, again, that, that the best stuff was floating to the top. So the idea was create a place where anyone can write and publish and help the, the good stuff find, you know, find audiences. And so that's what we created in, in 2012, and it's still the case today. Medium, anyone can write on Medium. Anyone can publish for free. It's read by about 140 million people a month visit Medium. Many of them log in and use the app. Many of them are paid subscribers. It's all ad-free. And it ranges from the amateur storyteller or the individual who wants to rant to professional journalists and publications. So where does Medium fit in the modern media landscape? As someone who sees kind of into the future and says, like, this is where I think media is going, where do you think it fits? Well, I think it's um, our aspiration is to be the best place to publish uh, and find quality, thoughtful content on the Internet. And I think we can achieve the best place to publish for the vast majority of individuals and organizations because it's just way easier and more efficient to publish to a network and the same reason for the same reason that if you have a tweet to share you don't share it anywhere but twitter if you have a, a video you might put it on your own website depending on what your goal is but if you just want audience you're gonna, probably going to put it on youtube so we're trying to achieve the same thing as the default and the best place to find your audience and to build an audience but without the downside of having to monetize with only advertising and really where where a system and and when you change the business model and you change what's rewarded then you create a space for quality and thoughtfulness and help good stuff rise to the top so we're not trying to get everyone to publish on medium but we're trying to get those people who are really trying to put stuff out there that is a value and is worth to put it on medium and make it the best place to find that stuff and uh, that's our goal. How's the subscription model been? I mean, has it been difficult to get people to subscribe? Will people pay for quality? I mean, this is the question of the internet, right? Yeah. Like, will people pay for quality content? People will. People will. I mean, we've been doing the subscription for, we're entering our, our third year, or just entered our third year. And we've done three years, sorry. And it's gone very well. And so the 
But founders always say that. Yes. What well, does that actually mean? <laughs> um, well, we don't share a subscription number, but okay. most most people are, are are surprised. And what we've learned, so it's been super interesting because what we've done is not just put up a paywall and, and charge money, which a lot of publishers have done. And even three years ago when we started that, the the default assumption was no one will pay on the internet or certainly no one will pay for written word content. That's all free, it's ubiquitous, there's too much of it. And on top of that, Medium is mostly user-generated content. It's an open platform anyone can publish. And while we now have an editorial team that, that publishes some, the vast majority of what's on Medium comes from individuals who can publish outside the paywall or behind the paywall and get paid. And so we we did something that that is very unusual, which is with an open platform, charge a subscription. And so open platforms lend themselves to advertising business models. This is YouTube, this is Twitter, this mm -hmm. is Facebook, this is everything, because it's all about volume and quantity. And as the platform, you generally don't pay for content. And so advertising tends to make very little per content, especially internet content, but, but there's lots and lots of it. And the quality doesn't matter if you're making money from advertising because people aren't paying for it. And for all those reasons, advertising is a model that makes sense for, for a platform, whereas a publisher who wants to charge a subscription, you think of the New Yorker and the New York Times, the, and it's like, oh, it's all about quality and brand and um, trust. And so what Medium has done is, what the biggest thing we've figured out is, is how to blend these two, because we believe deeply in the open model and that the idea that great ideas can come from anywhere. And many of, historically, the best stories on Medium that have been surprising and unique and valuable and interesting have come from places you would never expect. And we have lots of famous people and we have professional journalists and we have all kinds of people publish on Medium, but time after time, the thing that comes out of nowhere and blows people away is because it's open and free and anyone can publish. And so we hold that dear and we hold the fact that people should pay for quality and we should reward quality and that lenses. So, what we've done is blend those models and we do a lot of work to curate the best of medium, help make sure that people are seeing both what's interesting to them and what's actually good. And when we do that, what we find is is people happily pay. Do you worry that, especially now that good information is, is harder and harder to get, I mean, do you think it's we're going to have this almost like junk food epidemic for information where like you're going to pay like only the people who can afford it are going to be able to mm. have good information. Yeah. And then and so when your kids grow up, if they grow up wealthy, they'll be able to have good premium information. And then if not, they're going to have like the bad information of like the, you know, look in the dumpster of the Internet. <laughs> and then we're just going to create yeah. a world of haves and have nots. Like, do you worry about that? It's It's a good question. I think we need to think about that a bit more. I think in the near term, we won't have that because one of the one of the nice things about the model like Medium has, which same as the New York Times has, is the people who are willing and able to pay it actually are subsidizing it. It's not a hard paywall. What happens is it's actually a little bit of a, it's, it's good for everyone in the sense that the few people who pay for Medium enable 100 plus million people to read Medium and not pay. I think that can continue. I don't know if that will always be the model. 
But what that allows is then because certain people are paying and, and some authors and publications can do very well in a subscription model who couldn't even survive in an advertising model because different types of content, it's not just that it's paid for differently, it's different types of content will work better in an advertising model versus a, a subscription model. And one of the things that's been really informative as we've been building this is engagement and value are not the same thing. And if you build a, an advertising-based platform, what you learn and what Silicon Valley engineers obsess on all day long is how to increase engagement. And engagement is measured in all kinds of ways and everything's measured. And it's all about making the charts go up. And it's like, if we move this button or if we change the density of the listings or if we do this or that, if we send more notifications, will people spend more time? And so you have these charts and you try to make the charts go up. And in an advertising business, those charts are very tightly correlated with how much money the business makes because what you're selling is that attention. So it's all about capturing more and more attention. With a subscription business, so at Medium, we have all those charts as well. And you know we're very familiar with that model. And what we notice is those things you can measure do not necessarily correlate with the business. They don't necessarily correlate with subscription because what we're asking people to do is make an evaluation of, is this worth my time? Not just worth my time, but am I willing to pay for this? Do I feel good about that time I spent? And there's no way to actually measure how much value someone is getting, except if they're paying for it. And so what we found is there are certain types of content that will be consumed and people are less likely to pay. And there's other content that that may be consumed in less numbers, but those people are very happy. And we can all imagine things that may not be wildly popular, but we feel really good about consuming or we get a lot of value out of personally. And it's, that is worth something to us. So that's a roundabout way of saying by building these subscription models or this model in particular, we can enable things to exist that are extremely valuable. And for a lot of people, they will be free and they'll because they'll be subsidized by the people they're really valuable to. And the writers who are writing them are going to be able to get paid in a way that they would have never been able to in an advertising model. And they're going to reach an audience they would have never been able to, say, in a book model because they're still open and free out on the Internet. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, almost 10 years after leaving Twitter, Ev explains why it's still difficult for him to talk about exiting the company he founded. And if you have questions about the show, comments, really anything, you can text me on my new community number, 917-540-3410. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it's been a year since you've left Twitter's board and you were there for 12 years. And I think mm-hmm. leaving any job, and I mean, you weren't day to day, but right. I know you you created this company. Um, what was the hardest part of like completely stepping away? Um, well, it was very hard to do that. Um, it's something I thought about doing for years. And Twitter is a very large part of my life, my identity, like I said, I feel very lucky to have been a part of it. I also stayed on the board because I wanted to be helpful and I felt an obligation to be to be helpful. And I don't know if I was, but I, I tried my best to bring conversations and participate in conversations that that were brought to the board or that I thought we needed to have on the board. And that ranged from how to be helpful to the business to how to help make sure we do the right thing. And there was a point where I felt like for the time I was spending, I could be more helpful doing other things. And so that was sort of my equation. The other reason I like being on the board for a long time, it was tremendously educational for me to see as a as a student and a builder of businesses to see a company go from from zero to a 
public company worth billions of dollars and having thousands of employees and seeing the issues that came up and seeing the different rounds of, of management and leadership and how they handled the many, many challenges that were extremely complex was even if I didn't feel like I was always being helpful, I was always actually learning a great deal. And so I started to see decreasing returns just because the company had been the size it was in public for a while. And so that's why I got off the board. As far as the most difficult part, I think it was just giving up that part of my identity. Although I realized you can't unfound something. So <laughs> it still it still is. I mean, the main people, if, if people don't know me, it's like, I don't usually volunteer that information, but other someone else will say I co-founded Twitter. So the identity hasn't really changed that much. But I felt like, am I making a mistake? Should I, or it was probably the obligation part. I still also care about the company and so many people there that it's like, am I, it's like I'm quitting them. It's like I'm breaking up with them. I had sort of that feeling like I'm, uh, like I, I shouldn't do that. And I, I owed so much to the company that I should just stay as long as possible. But I got over that. Was there like a point that you were like, it's just time to go? Um, yeah, it was the beginning of last year. So yeah, a year ago, I'd, I often you know just try to assess life over the holiday break and say like, what do I want going forward? So it was, it was right after, after that, that I, I think it was after that, that I, that I told um, Omid and Jack. Hmm. It is funny though. I think identity is a really big thing for tech founders, and mm-hmm. and because startups are like children to mm-hmm. a degree, and totally. and you and you live and breathe them. I think that people don't talk about to get to where you're at and the seat where you're at, where you can just casually talk about a lot of these things. It comes with like an extraordinary amount of. Um, resilience and a lot of these downtimes that that we don't really talk about. Everyone has failings in their jobs. Yeah. Everyone goes through things. But how did you because I think we can talk about it now that you seem, you know, we just talked about medium and yeah. doing well. <laughs> um how did you move on? How does one move on? Um it's still not that easy to talk about, but time is is a big thing. It's been a decade. Almost. It'll, it'll be a decade this year since I left. And, you know, hopefully I've grown in that time and uh, just gotten distance. And I also, I just see it much more balanced now. I've learned a lot about people and politics and relationships. And I can own a lot of the, for a long time, it just felt like this grave injustice mm-hmm. and betrayal. And now I look at it more neutrally and say like, okay, I can see, I can disagree with this conclusion or how this and this was done. I can also see the logic and I can see also the gift that I got of freedom and the ability to to pursue different things. And for a long time it was, I didn't necessarily look at it that way, but that's how I think about it now. You said you had a mentor who said during tough times, you either change for the better or you just get frozen. Right. How did right. you change for the better? That was actually, yeah, I forgot about that, but that was when I was still dealing with a lot. And yeah, he said, given given what you've done already, you're you're going to be better because of this. You just don't know how yet. And that started a long journey of sort of introspection. And I don't know how much of it was recovering from that, but I think I think had I been caught up in running the company for, you know, it was totally crazy for lots of years and probably still is 
but I probably wouldn't have taken as much time to grow personally. And so that's been part of what I've been doing the last few years via health, meditation, kids, family, you know, relationship development. All all of those things have helped me create that distance and sort of the the more even uh, view of it. How do you take care of your head when you're a founder and you talk about like, you know, taking care of yourself personally and, and that kind yeah. of thing? Like, what do you actually do? What like, do I do? Literally, what do I do? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I actually think like tangibles are yeah. kind of interesting. So the things I do now that I think looking back, it's just silly not to have done before are are the things that everyone is. It feels cliche to say, but I try to get enough sleep. So like seven to eight hours of sleep every night and I exercise, I meditate, I eat well or at least better than than I did at one time. And, you know, all the kind of the classic things. Um, another thing that uh, I think has helped a lot with the, with the culture of Medium is just um, developing much better relationships with my team through training and workshops and stuff. That's been a really healthy thing for our culture and a very big difference from how I ran things in Medium. What do you think when you look to the future in 50 years, you have kids now, I mean, what do you think communication looks like for your kids in, in 50 years? Are we even on Twitter? Oh, wow. Does CNN exist? Oh, like, gosh. Is advertising I... a thing? Like, just take us to the future. Oh, wow. 50 years. I tend to think that things get more extreme, but in more than one direction at once. So on the one hand, I think a lot of the sci-fi visions of people being totally jacked into the matrix, whether it's VR or more likely AR, augmented reality, like the the fact that we'll have heads-up displays and glasses that project information into our eyeballs, I think that will totally be true and a real thing. And I'm sure we'll have ambient, always-on audio in our ears and maybe even i'm i'm not up to speed on the neurotransmitters you know sending information directly to our brains but i know people are working on that i think all those things will be true i also and so like everything else that'll be good and bad it'll be partially touted as oh we're not looking at our phones the whole time because we're getting just the information we need but i also think that'll be overwhelming i think Hopefully, because I like to be optimistic, we'll get over the sugar high of of information. I think the misinformation and fake news and abuse and all those things that are part of the internet today, I think there's solves to all of those. I think that really, yeah. Do you really think we get on top of this? Yes, I think we I get don't on know, top of it. Ev, like I, I think it we did, get on like top of it. In the years that we've been talking, it doesn't. It, it feels like. I don't know. I think we get on top of all that. I think it's still really early. It's still all driven by advertising, and, do you think that's, and that's fixable. Do you think that the fund, the business model of Silicon Valley changes in order Absolutely. for that to happen? How? It has to. What does it uh, change to? Everything most is subscription-based? Every, because everybody who can is going to pay for a higher quality information just like they pay for higher quality entertainment. Like You don't know anyone who can't afford it who doesn't have Netflix and probably three other streaming services or Spotify or Apple Music. And it's just way better. And the same thing will happen with our news and information that we consume as well as probably your social networks. 
which will also exist, but they'll all be much more. Now, there's going to be a downside of that as well. Maybe there'll be more gated communities. Maybe there'll be more uh, filter bubbles. You guys just create like uh, the ultimate, I don't know, Silicon Valley where like we can't even be in your presence. because I, it's, like, I don't know what you're talking to me about. I, I live in New York. I'm that's okay. <laughs> so I think all that's going to happen. There's also going to be a one one trend in general is that the internet reflects the real world more and more over time. And so one of the reasons we're going through, even if you look at cybersecurity, is because most most the internet was not built. It was like communities that were small towns and didn't have locks on their doors and then they became big cities and people decided they needed to take security much more seriously and we need police forces and that's just that's taking a while. And so that's all going to happen, I'm sure. I think it's mentally and emotionally, I, I am concerned about what the that extreme looks like, even if we've addressed some of the more blatant issues we have today. And I, so I think the, on the other extreme, there's going to be hopefully enough nature or nature-like experiences where people can complete, I think there'll be a big trend toward completely unplugging real life interaction and that will be a way to live at least part of your life. Hmm. What do you think is, um, actually, will you go a little black mirror with me for a moment? <laughs> sure. Someone in here said to me, like, he's like, well, I'm worried about Netflix um, and the idea that like they'll be able to measure your facial expressions and and know the second, you talk about this instant feedback and how yeah. bad it is and, and know the second that you're not interested and be mm. able to to target and, and do that kind of thing. Do you think we're, when it comes to the future of media, like the media companies will be able to know the second we're not, our attention is is gone and be able to, to kind of act accordingly? I think that's much more likely with CNN than with Netflix. Do you think they, CNN will exist in in 50 years? The brand will. Big media brands don't die. But Netflix, because when they start doing that, it's going to be the same thing when we get someone to read something on Medium that they, they click on because hmm. it appeals to their base instincts, but they don't value. And hmm. so because now Netflix may create an advertising business as well and, and be doing that. I don't know if Netflix will be independent in 50 years, but... They'll probably be owned by Disney. I hope not, by the way. I, was, I just read that <laughs> on Medium, so uh, speculating. What do you think is the single most important ethical issue when it comes to the future of tech and us complicated human beings? The most important ethical issue? Well, I mean, the what biggest- What do we need to pay attention to? I mean, to frame it as an ethical issue is, by the way, I think Netflix will be all video games in 50 years, too. Why? Because they're more compelling. That That's the thing that will- uh, capturing people's attention more. Entertainment is going to shift more to You think it's all going to games. And do you think with augmented layers we're all just going to be in like a giant video game of sorts? Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, it <laughs> you looks said like to go black your mirror, kids so. have a great future ahead. Uh, <laughs> no, there there will still be storytelling. Storytelling great. is is not going anywhere. But the ethical issue, I mean the issue that I'm most concerned about and we've talked about before is is climate and it's tangential to most of the things we're talking mm -hmm. about, but on the other hand, completely related because I think the the reason the world has not done enough for climate change so far isn't because of lack of information or lack of possibilities. It's because of media manipulation and politics and by those who it's not in their interest to do to do things. So I see that as the biggest issue by far that we need to grapple with. And as an as an ethical issue, 
it's not clear to me what what tech does about that, but I worry about it. You did Blogger, Twitter, Medium. You just come up with like a new form of communication every so often that fundamentally changes things. Will Medium be your final act? I think so. I can't see starting another company from scratch. And and there's so much more I want to do with Medium. I do really feel like we're we're scratching the surface. And there's there's not really anything I can't be. Certainly, if I were going to start another internet and media thing, I can do all I want to do and all I can imagine within Medium. If I were to start another company, it would probably be totally unrelated. I want to do a quick lightning round. Who would you rather have dinner with, Elon Musk or um, Mark Zuckerberg? Who's at your table? <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to pick? Can I have them both? I just like them. Do you want them both? Sure. I'd love to have them and see what they chat about. Okay. The feature you wish you'd created on Twitter, but you didn't. Oh. Well, you know, it's a silly thing that we should. It's basically Instagram. What? There was a very long time when you couldn't upload a picture to Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then eventually we built it in. But I think we could have done everything that Instagram does as a, as a separate separate app or a separate feed or something. Hmm. The media company you'd like to buy since um, you're, I think you're a billionaire, you're a billionaire and Benioff <laughs> bought time. So everyone's doing it these days in your position. I, I know uh, you, didn't you want to, you I wanted to buy one. I can answer that. Why not? Stop looking at your PR people. Why not? <laughs> um, you can answer okay. whatever you want. I'm gonna, okay, Disney. <laughs> okay. Years ago, you told me no regulation would be better than bad regulation. What candidate is best equipped to deal with the nuances of social media issues from tech companies being too powerful to the spread of misinformation? I don't know. Which one's the worst candidate to deal with it? I don't know. Oh, man. So are you not political? I'm political when I, I, I haven't, I don't want to weigh in on the current uh, Democratic candidates. I will certainly get behind one. Uh, do you have a free ride to space or a doomsday scenario, like a bunker kind of thing? No. I, that's, no? I don't worry like that. No. Okay. Um, just in, in general. Not, that's not because of coronavirus, just no. in general. You know, I feel like a lot of people in Silicon Valley have those. I, I don't have those. I do have, my dad still lives on the farm I grew up in in rural Nebraska. So that's sort of like, could always retreat to there. Okay. Some personal questions. When is the last time you felt really uncomfortable? Besides, when you're asking me questions besides, about politics and was, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, it, it, sometimes I think people maybe think because you're a, a big founder, you probably don't really get uncomfortable. Um, but I, I can imagine you get uncomfortable sometimes. Absolutely. When um, I was uncomfortable when you were asking me about being fired from Twitter, that was. It, it still to this day feels sensitive. Yeah. Why? It's embarrassing. Really? Look at all the things you've gone and done since. It's, uh, I don't know. It's not a logical thing necessarily. I guess it makes it makes sense. It was really public. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it, it was sort of, it was one of those euphemisms at the time. Like I'm spending more time with family, stepping away. But yeah, I mean, talking about failure is uncomfortable for me. Why? Um, because I've spent, I think, most of my life trying to succeed. Isn't failure just part of success? I mean, if I could go back to any founder it I've is. ever interviewed, the only thing that most of them have in common is a little bit of insanity, a lot of resilience, and, <laughs> and the ability to fail over and over again. Yeah. You know, I don't feel sensitive about I've failed in many things in terms of, like, here's an idea that I think would work and doesn't work. And I've gotten much better about embracing being wrong. But that that that's a different thing, I feel like. 
I can imagine that it, it felt it felt right. tough. I, I saw something you wrote. You were talking about some of the stuff you kind of put yourself through in building a company, and you were saying, "I certainly would have." Uh, would have made more progress overall had I gotten more sleep and taken care of myself, but I don't feel like I could have done it any other way given the person I was. I needed total immersion driven out of fear and lack of knowledge. Hmm. Um, what were you so afraid of like when building a company? Um, depends on what time I was talking about, but it was it, like in blogger times where I went when laid off my whole team and almost went out of business. I just didn't see any alternative that was acceptable. It was a lot of pride, I think, and ego. Didn't want to fail, <laughs> I guess. And I didn't want to, I didn't think I was qualified to get any sort of job that I would want. Um, this is during the kind of the dot-com bust. And so it just seemed like unacceptable to fail. Hmm. You know, when we talk about... Um money and this bubble. You have a lot of money and Silicon Valley's problem is that to a degree, no matter how optimistic you guys are, and I know you are an optimist and you've claimed to be an optimist, um, you guys live in a bubble and increasingly it's smaller. So how do you fix the problems in the world um, that are created by the tech that much of the tech that you guys have built when the bubble you live in is kind of shrinking? Shrinking in as terms in of it's probably harder. I can imagine um, that it's probably harder for you to understand and grasp the real world when you live in such a bubble. And and I yeah. granted you live in New York, you aren't as Silicon Valley as many of the founders I know. Um, you speak a little bit more openly than some of the Silicon Valley founders I know. Um, but it is a bubble. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the biggest thing is just try to be open. I mean, I. And th that is part of moving to New York and getting different perspectives and talking to people. But I can't, I think the biggest thing is not, it was having people in the company who um, who have different perspectives and really building diversity into the company and, and a culture of, of listening. And then also relates to a, a willingness to be wrong. I think that that exchange i i'm happy to debate things and be wrong and have opinions and that's something we try to engender in the company so i think just it's not i don't know everything i have to keep reminding myself of that and i've i feel like i know a lot less than i used to think i know so that's good is that hard to do i know a lot of the people we've had on on the show so far have talked about it's harder and harder to speak truth to power in silicon valley mm. um especially in these tech companies where there's a billion dollar bottom line, it is harder sometimes to go to the top and, and say what's actually happening. Maybe that's not the case as much as medium. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I'd, I probably can't say whether that's hard to medium or not, but um feels like there's a lot more of that happening in, in Silicon Valley than, than there used to be. But in terms of people, well, maybe not than there used to be. At Silicon Valley, I would say that's one thing that people underestimate that has always been a really healthy aspect of Silicon Valley companies, certainly compared to the rest of corporate America and corporate the world, is that there is sort of an attitude of everybody's smart and has something to contribute. And I remember when I was at Google in 2003 and 2004, lots of people, the company was a couple of thousand people and engineers and other people didn't have any problem standing up in all hands and calling out Larry or Sergey or Eric on something in front of everyone and the whole, or in email more likely, 
and the do not be evil thing was taken very, very seriously. Um, and now there's walkouts. And, and so I think that, that tension and people's willingness to do that is, is a good thing and healthy and it keeps founders in check. And a, a big reason that founders are, I think, not as much in a bubble as they would be is because their employees don't let them be. Do you believe that the products you are responsible for will do more good than bad when you look back at history? Um, yes, I have to believe they will do more good than bad, especially the the one I'm working on now. Cool. How do you want to be known? I don't need to be known. Huh. How would you want your children to view you? Um, I would want them to view me as as working very hard to do what I thought was the right thing. That's it. I hope you enjoyed getting inside Ev's brain a bit. Now, we're trying something new this go-around. We're adding show notes so you can get a bit more context from these conversations. So for that photo we spoke about, my first contact with Ev back in 2010, see our show notes. And you can also find a link to the full transcript of this episode. Also, let me know what you thought of it. I'm trying out this new community number so you can text me, and I swear this actually goes directly to my phone. The number is 917-540-3410. So text me. And here's a personal request. If you like the show, leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can follow me. I'm at Lori Siegel on Twitter and Instagram, and the show is at First Contact Podcast on Instagram. And on Twitter, we're at First Contact Pod. First Contact is a production of Dot 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 Media, executive produced by Lori Siegel and Derek Dodge. And this episode was produced and edited by Sabine Jansen and Jack Regan. Original theme music by Xander Singh. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.